In early childhood, the differences between the sexes are more minimal. But once puberty starts, male testosterone surges to 20 times that in females. And the results are permanent physical and athletic advantages. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Tech Sledge. Thanks again for joining us for our show from the Austin Institute on all things having to do with this session of the Texas legislature. Uh, As we began the whole show with, no man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature is in session, so it uh, behooves us all to keep a close watch on things as they develop. This is an episode uh, all about protecting women's athletics and the legislation that's being heard right now uh, on that topic at the legislature. I am your host, once again, uh, Dr. Kevin Stewart. I'm the executive director of the Austin Institute, and uh, it is part of my job these days to head down to the Capitol and give advice to legislature to legislators at the legislature about what the science and social science say regarding a lot of these issues that come up at the legislature as they affect the family. Our goal is to help them make better law for the family in Texas. So let's talk about this issue. Uh, the issue is protecting women's athletics. And uh, the bill number, in case you're following these things at home, it's Senate Bill 29, or you'll see it abbreviated SB 29, where SB stands for Senate Bill. The author is Senator Charles Perry. To give you a bit of structural background, uh, that bill was referred to the State Affairs Committee. Uh, So that that is a committee within the Senate where the bill will be heard before it makes it, if it makes it, to a vote by the whole Senate. That committee is chaired by Senator Brian Hughes. So the relevant text from the bill, again, just to get some of the basics out there so you're familiar with what we're dealing with, and then we'll get into the the hot arguments around it. Um, But it's always best to begin with the facts. And so the facts are, let me read you the actual text of the relevant portion of the legislation. It's short, so it won't be bad. Section 33.0832, interscholastic athletic participation based on biological sex. Except as provided by subsection B, an interscholastic athletic team sponsored or authorized by a school district or open enrollment charter school may not allow a student to participate in an interscholastic athletic activity sponsored or authorized by the district or school that is designated for the biological sex opposite to the student's biological sex as determined at the student's birth and correctly stated on the student's official birth certificate. So that's legal language. And what that means this provision would do is that when people are born, there's a birth certificate. That birth certificate indicates sex. Um, That birth certificate will be the basis for participation in high school athletics. If that birth certificate says you were a boy, then you participate in the boys' division. If that birth certificate says you were a girl, then you participate in the girls, and people may not go back and forth regardless of their gender identity. So that's the legislation itself. Testimony on this bill was heard for a number of hours last Friday, March 26th, at the Capitol. I was there for a lot of it. Um, As is often the case, 
to the detriment of common sense positions, most of the witnesses testified against the bill, actually. I want to go through their arguments because they had some that are better than others, right? Their best arguments, so the best arguments of those who oppose this legislation uh, were, frankly, from pathos. That is the plight of troubled young people who could benefit from athletic competition. So there was there were several witnesses, some of them young people themselves, some of them the parents of young people, who are troubled in in the way that those struggling with gender identity are troubled. And they expressed how much they could benefit from athletic competition. And I don't doubt that that's true. Um, They were sympathetic, and it was really impossible not to feel deeply for them. And I think it's important up front to acknowledge that because this should keep those of us who ultimately disagree with them and disagree quite strongly. We think they're wrong about some of the really important fundamental facts here. But it should keep us um, from dehumanizing or dismissing them. Indeed, all the best takes on these issues from Austin Institute fellow, Dr. Melissa Moschella to uh, Ryan Anderson, they all proceed from a theological insight that each person is beloved by God and deserves humane treatment. And even outside of a church or theological setting, we have to act, we should all act on that insight that every person is uh, unique and to be treasured and their troubles are in some sense our troubles. And so we need to pay attention to to their distress. Um, That said, that doesn't predetermine the outcome of this legislation, obviously. Um, And those were their their best arguments were that we need to find some way, some outlet for these students to engage in athletic competition because there are a lot of benefits to to all of us as adults, but also and perhaps particularly to children in athletic competition. That said, right, here's the big but, however, comma, they also advanced a number of really bad arguments. And those are the ones that we heard primarily repeated over and over again. So really bad argument number one. This is a solution in search of a problem. The argument went that there are not just droves of transgender athletes racking up all the trophies, that the the awards table isn't rife with uh, awards being taken uh, by transgender athletes. And I think that's a bad argument in no small part because the time to solve a problem, if it's going to be a problem, is before you reach that point. And so it's just not a good argument at all. We've seen in other states, I think it ignores the evidence of other states, where, for example, in Connecticut a couple of years ago, trans athletes in track and field racked up something like 15 awards taking the top positions in track and field events. So if you let it get to that point, it will get to that point. Texas is a much bigger state than Connecticut with a much bigger population. And so there's no reason to think that if this happened in a small place like Connecticut, that it won't happen in much greater ways, in much more profound ways in Texas. And the time to solve that problem is before it becomes a problem because it's much more difficult to solve once it's already entrenched in that way. 
I have to say, I suspect some disingenuousness on the part of the people making the argument. They know this. They know this. So that's really bad argument number one. Really bad argument number two is that science says there's no athletic advantage even for transgender girls. Those are uh, people born male who identify as female participating in female athletics. In other words, biological males participating in the female division. The claim was that science says there's no athletic uh, advantage for them, particularly after they've been on a course of cross-sex hormone therapy. This argument is just flatly not true. And this argument was actually the substance of my own uh, testimony before the committee, which I will recap here for you. Um, So that testimony ran like this. The bottom line is that sex is real. Biological males are on average five inches taller. They are faster. They are stronger. They have bigger bones. They have greater muscle mass. They have larger hearts. They have larger lungs. They have greater lung capacity. In childhood, the differences, uh, in early childhood, the differences between the sexes are more minimal. But once puberty starts, male testosterone surges to 20 times that in females. And the results are permanent physical and athletic advantages. Permanent. Let's go through those. So males end up with um, 40% more muscle mass and 40% less body fat. These, and crucially, these advantages remain even after a transition is done. So, you know, suppose someone objected, sure, Dr. Stewart, there are obvious physical advantages for for sort of standard-issue males and standard-issue females, but the cross-sex hormones erase those advantages. That's simply not true either. There was a study last year in 2020 by a female researcher that showed that even after a course of cross-sex hormones, major uh, advantages uh, were retained by biological males. They turned out to be more typical of male height or closer to typical male height, strength, speed, agility, and all of those, all of those other dimensions. So they, they are still much closer to male. Weakened, yes, um, but still much closer to male. And so then the question naturally arises, can we see those physical differences? Okay, so far so good, right? The science says males are different from females. But can we see those physical differences in the data of athletic performance? Yeah, we can. Um, performance gap, there's usually a 10 to 50%, depending on the, on the sport. And again, there was a 2020 study on this. And that same study found that the, the biological advantage, even in sports, is only minimally reduced when testosterone is suppressed. Now, here, here's an example of how big those advantages become. There are 9,000 males between 100-meter record holder Usain Bolt the male record holder, and Flojo, the female record holder, 9,000. The current 100-meter Olympic champion, Elaine Thompson, so the current female Olympic champion in the 100 meters, Elaine Thompson, is slower than the 14-year-old boy record holder. At 400 meters, Allison Felix is a world champion. 
But in 2018, there were 275 American high school boys who, ro- who ran faster on 783 occasions. So think about that. The fastest woman in the world at 400 meters is Allison Felix. And in 2018, in one country alone, the United States, there were 275 high school boys who were faster. And they ran faster times on 783 occasions. And then, of course, we can refer back to the Connecticut case that I've already mentioned, where uh, trans athletes, especially biological males competing in the female division, have, in fact, outperformed their biological female counterparts in, in massive and striking ways. Now, mind you, the important thing to say here is, because it's almost embarrassing to talk about it, the important thing to say here is that these are not earned advantages for men. They, didn't, they don't deserve these advantages. These aren't earned through hard, through hard work. Biology has gifted males with advantages in physical competitions that make competitions between men and women unfair. And on the whole, there are just massive study, a massive body of evidence from studies that show that this is, this is the case. And so what the science actually suggests here is that the convention of separating the sexes in athletic competition has really robust data support. That if the worry is about fair competition, there are really strong data reasons to think as your sort of common sense perception would lead you to believe without the need to recur to data science. But there are really strong data reasons to validate separating the sexes in athletic competitions. Um, And so that... That really, all of that data, prevent, presenting all that data was really the sum and substance of my brief uh, testimony before the committee. And I think it's important to know that the, data, the science is, on, is, is pointing toward one side of, of this legislation, um, that the science does not say, as we hear argued over and over again, that there's no advantage. In fact, the science says quite the opposite that there's a tremendous advantage in athletic and physical competition to being male. Tremendous advantage. Insuperable advantage. Once puberty has set in, those changes are permanent. The bones aren't going to become less dense. The muscle mass advantage is not going to go away completely. Um, There are just going to be persistent, uh, strong advantages to being male in physical competition. So much so that it makes a lot of sense to put males and females in separate divisions. Now, the testimony last Friday is not the end. Uh, It's not the end for this legislation. It's not the end for that bill or others. So the bill that we're talking about here is Senate Bill 29. Um, That one has had a hearing in the Senate. There's a House bill. The number is 1458, so HB 1458. The author is Representative Swanson. So that's another bill on this. Um, That one would also cover collegiate athletics. So you've got two bills, one that covers only high school and below, really, um, and the other which covers both school athletics and uh, collegiate athletics. Both bills are and will continue to be making their way through the committees. So Swanson's bill, 1458, has also been assigned on the House side to the State Affairs Committee. And um, then once, if they make it out of the committees, so that one has not been heard yet. So the next thing that will happen is likely to be 
um, hearings in the House, on the House side, for Swanson's bill, 1458. Then um, if both of those bills pass their respective chambers, they'll have to go over to the other side. If you want your voice to be heard on this issue, because I know a lot of people are paying attention to it. One, I think it's great that you're listening to this podcast so you can get the science under you, you know, under your belt um, and proceed with the confidence that there is some scientific data here that is reliable and, and good. And two, you should go ahead and contact your legislature your legislators. Now is the time uh, because these bills are making their way through the House and the Senate, um, through the committees, and then they will make it to the floor. But this is a huge issue that's going on around the around the country. Just recently, governors in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, um, South Dakota, Nevada, Utah have taken up this legislation um, so things are moving around the country. They are moving here in Texas on this issue. Uh, obviously, the states are in some tension with the federal government on this issue. So if if you are if you are ready to be part of the fight, if you have a view that needs to be heard, now is the time, and the Texas State Legislature is the place. And the Austin Institute is here to keep you informed as to what's going on and give you the best scientific take, science and social science. On these, on these issues as they affect the family. And so thanks for joining us again for an episode of Text Ledge. We'll be back with more as issues continue to unfold and develop at the Texas legislature. There's a lot more to come before, the end, before we reach the end of session, which is at the end of May. So stay tuned and thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to Text Ledge, a podcast from the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.